Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning and a warm welcome to Hong Kong's top-rated business and finance show. This is Peter Lewis with the original Money Talk. The podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. Here are the headlines for today, Friday the 21st of April. In a major speech yesterday setting out the Biden administration's economic policy towards China, US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called for a constructive and fair economic relationship between China and the US, but she warned any effort to decouple from China would be disastrous. She also announced the Biden administration was considering a program to restrict certain U.S. outbound investment in specific sensitive technologies with significant national security implications. The People's Bank of China kept its loan prime rates for one-year and five-year loans unchanged on Thursday. The country's benchmark lending rates have remained on hold since August 2022. The one-year rate, which affects new loans, was kept steady at 3.65%. The five-year rate, which influences mortgages, was unchanged at 4.3%. Taiwan export orders plunged by the most since the global financial crisis last month. Orders for Taiwanese exports tumbled 25.7% year-on-year, accelerating from an 18.3% drop in February. It was the largest annual decline since January 2009, due to weaker demand for almost all product groups and ongoing slack consumer demand in Europe, the US and mainland China. Australia is planning the biggest shake-up of its central bank in decades, following an independent review of the Reserve Bank of Australia. Changes to the RBA include the creation of an expert policy committee responsible for setting interest rates, mirroring the approach in Canada and the UK. RBA policymakers would now gather to set interest rates eight times a year, compared with current 11 meetings. The move comes amid criticism from some lawmakers and economists that officials took too long to tighten policy in response to accelerating inflation. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Mark Franklin, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manulife Investment Management here in Hong Kong. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, Director at Staten Advice. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, which is peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks slipped Thursday in reaction to a mixed bag of corporate earnings and soft economic data in the form of rising jobless claims and a slumping Philly Fed manufacturing survey index. The S&P 500 dropped 0.6% to finish at 4,130. The S&P 500 has now gone 20 straight sessions without falling more than a percent. The Dow lost 110 points, that's a third of a percent, to close at 33,787. The Nasdaq Composite slipped 0.8% to settle at 12,060. Tesla shares plunged almost 10% after price cuts to its electric vehicles caused its gross profit margin to slip to its lowest level in 13 quarters. Chief Executive Elon Musk on Wednesday indicated that it's perfectly willing to sacrifice profits to boost demand and capture market share. Chinese markets were mixed. The Shanghai Composites was down 0.1% at 3,367. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index ended the day 29 points or 0.1% higher at 20,397. Futures markets are pointing to a fall of 117 points or 0.6% for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. And elsewhere in the markets... 
Treasury yields fell on Thursday as investors assessed the interest rate outlook. This morning, Fed Fund futures markets are signalling an 84% chance of a 25 basis points rate hike in two weeks' time. The yield on the 10-year Treasury was down by five basis points to 3.54%. And soft economic data from the US sent oil prices to their lowest since the surprise OPEC price cut announcement. Brent crude oil tumbled 2.4% to $81.10 a barrel. And you can get all the latest market movements on my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And it's time to welcome our guests. We have with us Francis Lunn, who is the CEO of Geo Securities. Morning, Francis. Hi, good morning. And also with us is Mark Franklin, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manulife Investment Management right here in Hong Kong. Morning, Mark. Good morning, Peter. Now, in a major speech yesterday, setting out the Biden administration's economic policy towards China, U.S. Mm. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called for a constructive Mm. and fair economic relationship between China and the U.S., but she warned any effort to decouple from China would be disastrous. Ms. Yellen said both countries needed to be able to discuss difficult issues, Mm. frankly. She said the U.S. would continue to work with allies to resist Beijing's unfair economic policies. She said China's decision in recent years to pivot from market reforms to a more state-driven approach had undercut its neighbours and countries across the world. And she went on to maintain that the US was not trying to undermine China. Ms. Yellen also announced that the Biden administration was considering a program to restrict certain US outbound investment in specific sensitive technologies with significant national security implications, which are measures likely to further anger Beijing. So, Francis, mm-hmm. um, do you see this as an olive branch at all to China in any way? Yeah, uh, ever since uh, Blinken canceled his visit to China because of the uh, uh, balloon issue. Uh, uh, China has rebuffed all attempts by the U.S. to restart uh, diplomatic dialogue. In the meantime, uh, China made a surprise uh, diplomatic success in bringing Saudi Arabia and Iran together. And that really (laughs) shocked the U.S. because the U.S. thought thought, uh, it was the uh, the, uh, arbiter in the Middle East. So so in many areas, uh, Chinese diplomacy is undercutting American influence. Uh, The U.S. never really worried about South Pacific, but now it has a lot of diplomatic activities in South Pacific and Southeast Asia and the Middle East. So, but at the same time, the U.S. fear China's economic might because in maybe in five years' time, uh, China will uh, equal uh, the U.S. in gross GDP. But that's why the U.S. is really keen on the keeping its advantage, especially in semiconductor and high technology. That's why it's uh, putting all these uh, uh, sanctions and uh, blacklists on the semiconductor and chips uh, technology, etc. So on the one hand, uh, you have fear. On the other hand, uh, the U.S. wants to make money because uh, Apple and Tesla make 30% of the profit in China. 
They cannot afford to get it cut off. Uh, Boeing is uh, has already been cut off uh, for two or three years now, so it's losing big money. So, uh, uh, so it's a mixed bag of this. That's why the China want to restart diplomatic dialogue with China. Mark, I'm sure the intentions here are good, aren't they? Miss Yellen's、uh, sort of fairly diplomatic, and obviously she wants to get the relationship back on track. Do you think this will do that? Uh, short answer is no.、Um, I think that the tone of Yellen's speech is designed to try to cool the heat、um, in the dynamic that we've seen over the last few months.、Um, but I, I, I spot somewhat of a divergence in approach and intention from Yellen versus other members of the Biden administration. I think that Yellen historically has had very, very strong relationships with with the major Wall Street banks. And, and the banks are particularly nervous about the risk of, let's say, a forced decoupling rather than something that is incremental, given their determination and desire to benefit from the opening up of the Chinese capital markets. So、uh, her approach is, is is with her, let's say, her lobbyists in mind.、Um, but ultimately, I don't think that the current、uh, Chinese leadership recognises. Um, uh, the, 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 the concept of guardrails to the relationship, no matter what kind of、um, spin Yellen puts on some of these measures,、uh, the Chinese leadership will still see these as restricting China's development and progress potential. The, the problem is, Mark, isn't it that you know, on the one hand, you have Janet Yellen here saying she wants a normal economic relationship, and then the next day, the U.S. goes and puts more export restrictions, you know, that impact、uh, Chinese technology companies, or you have the U.S. Trade Secretary Gino Raimondo, who is definitely a, a China hawk,、um, saying that you know the U.S. needs to take a tougher line. Well, that's right. I mean, one of the things which has crept back into the narrative and the discourse in the last few days has been. Uh, revisiting the trade deal that Trump's administration signed with China, and and the lack of fulfilment of some of those obligations from the Chinese side, and 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 the Biden administration seems to be wanting to revisit that and use that as a as a backdrop for further restrictions. Again, you have to look back and say、uh, that was an unsuccessful initiative. And just effectively trying to repeat that same approach is unlikely to yield positive results again. And there was a bit of a sting in the towel, wasn't there, in Janet Yellen's speech because she announced that the U.S. is going to restrict outbound investment now in、uh, specific sensitive technologies. So once again,、um, it's giving with one hand, taking away with the other. That's right. I, one of the one of the concerns that the U.S. has, but also other other powers that are major high-end technology exporters, is that some of these、um, technologies, particularly in the semiconductor space, are unfortunately finding their way into、um, military capabilities or military usage, whereas they were initially designed for for commercial civilian usage. And I think that's something which、uh, the U.S. and 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 the powers such as Japan and Netherlands are, are quite concerned about. I think in addition to that as well. Is maintaining or an attempt to maintain? It's, it's not about parity of GDP because on, on a purchasing power parity basis, many people would argue that China is already there. And, and, and on normal nominal basis, it's it's going to take many many more years than five years to reach that point. It's actually more about leadership in key areas of technology development, whether that's cyberspace, security, AI, and the usage of semiconductors in in those in those、uh, verticals. And that's what they're trying to focus on at the moment.、Um, 
Francis, do you think the US can have it both ways? That's what they seem to want here, isn't it? They want, on the one hand, this normal economic relationship with China where they trade with each other. And as we know, trade was at a record high last year. But then at the same time, there's certain things they want to restrict, particularly in the technologies um, sector. Can, Can they have both? No, no, they they cannot they have, have the cake at it too. You either have your cake or or you don't have a cake. <laughs> mm. So so I think uh, uh, China, uh, I mean the U.S. is trying to have it both ways. How 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 can you put so much restrictions on the semiconductor exports and especially uh, uh, putting pressure on Holland uh, to stop uh, ASML? Uh, exporting the uh, uh, optical e- edging machine to China because uh, ASML o- almost has a monopoly on these machines. Mm. So these are all hostile acts, but uh, the U.S. sees it as the only way that it can maintain its technology edge over China mm-hmm. because in uh, other manufacturing, uh, uh, China already matched the U.S., uh, uh, but 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 one thing that uh, the Biden administration can do is really uh, cancel uh, all those uh, uh, tariffs imposed by by Donald Trump because uh, uh, frankly the trade war is not working in the U.S.'s fa- uh, favor and uh, and American consumers are paying twenty percent or more for Chinese imports. I think uh, this is not a constructive tariff. Uh, I think uh, uh, America can cut its uh, uh, inflation rate immediately by removing the tariff. Mark, you probably remember back to the 2008 financial crisis, Hank Paulson, when he was the US Treasury Secretary then, he was he was really frequently coordinating, wasn't he, with his Chinese counterparts. There was a lot of interaction between the US and China at the time. I suppose it's hard to imagine that today, isn't it, um, getting back to that, that sort of level of cooperation? Uh, the, the world was a very different place then, and the uh, the point in China's evolution, both economically and politically, was different as well. Um, but it does serve as a reminder the importance of coordination, particularly during crises, both economic and non-economic. Um, don't necessarily believe the media narrative that there is zero connectivity between the Biden administration and, and Xi's administration in China right now. There are lines of communication still. Uh, particularly um, in, in economics and finance. Indeed, Yellen um, met with Yi Gang, the, um, the governor of the PBOC, uh, just a few days back. So, um, it, you know, a, a lot of the a lot of the dynamics that we that we see and we hear and the speeches are given, we have to remember that that at many many situations they are geared towards a domestic audience to mm-hmm. serve a domestic narrative, and so the, the truth is somewhere closer to the middle rather than at one of the extremes. I mean, there is a looming crisis, isn't there, which could affect. Uh, U.S.-China relations, and that's this debate over the debt ceiling. If um, if uh, if America were to de- default, that would really badly undermine the dollar, wouldn't it? And also have a big impact on China. It wouldn't necessarily undermine the dollar because what else is also going on at the, this current moment is that we've seen a, a massive drawdown of the the Treasury General account by Yellen as a means to actually support financial markets and to mitigate and sterilise effects of QT. Um, that can't go on forever. Uh, and QT, the programme that's been running in the background, will start to reassert itself. 
and, and that will actually draw US dollar liquidity out of the system. And so what you might actually see, even with the debt ceiling dynamics going on, is, 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 is the potential for a tactical dollar appreciation. So it's not a given that the dollar would weaken. Neither is it a given that the treasuries, particularly um, those that are seen as the most safe haven parts of the curve, would necessarily decline in value. They, they may also be seen as a, as a source of dollars in a, in a shrinking dollar liquidity situation. Mm. Francis, can I ask you about the um, economic data that we had uh, this week? Mm -hmm. I suppose the highlight was the economy grew at the fastest pace in a year. Retail sales rose Mm -hmm. more than 10%. But officials don't seem very happy about it, do they? The the, the National Bureau of Statistics (laughs) spokesman was saying the foundation for the the economic rebound is not solid. We've got the National uh, National Reform and Development Commission saying Mm -hmm. they need to boost consumption. What is it that they're concerned about? Well, I think that what they're concerned about is really industrial production and industrial profit. I think uh, on the one hand, uh, you have a relaxation of COVID control, then the people are coming, going out and spend. So you have a very strong rise in the consumer spending. But, 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 the, but the other problem is that uh, the export orders are not going up. The factories are not really running at full, full still. And, uh, and, and if you look at the Taiwan trade figures, you, you, you find out that uh, globally uh, uh, there is a slowdown in trade mm-hmm. because the demand is quite weak uh, the europe is still hurt by inflation and uh, and the uh, ukraine war and uh, the us is also hurt by inflation also so so th- all these things have a negative imp- impact on the uh, consumer demand in the us and the eu and and th- this resulted in lower uh, uh, industrial production in china so to have a robust recovery, I think you need a, 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 a global eco- economies like the EU and the US to uh, to, to emerge out of this uh, uh, inflation-driven recession. What you mm-hmm. have is this, my recession right now, mainly due to inflation. But the data we saw today out of the US wasn't very encouraging, mm-hmm. was it? It seems to suggest that maybe the US will slip into recession. Yeah, definitely. I think that's what people fear. That's why the US market fell overnight. Uh, this will continue to haunt uh, U.S. equities uh, because uh, uh, the the uh, industrial giants are really not not making that much money. They don't mm. report stellar results. Mark, when you look into this data, I mean the headline numbers obviously quite good, but then when you start digging into it, you see things like business investment, for example, quite weak, which sort of suggests that businesses just don't seem to have that much confidence in the economy. What what are your thoughts? Some of the, the the GDP data that came out of China for Q1 was was um, had had a benefit from from revisions to prior data. So we have to discount some of the the, the superficial strength in certain numbers. As a, that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that um, that there is still um, excess capacity in many areas of the Chinese economy. Uh, when you combine that with also somewhat of a uh, of, of a more uncertain outlook, that is why business investment, business spending is not recovering strongly. Uh, where also Chinese consumers are re-engaging is, is travel outbound and spending on uh, luxury consumer discretionary 
outside the borders of China. So that's why you've seen very, very strong results from some of the luxury goods companies that are listed in Europe, um, whereas actually those consumers are not deploying that, that discretionary spending as much um, domestically. So yeah, China's reopening has been very, very helpful for, for, for the global economy from a very low base. But so far, the main beneficiaries are not necessarily the domestic Chinese economy, but certain parts of the European economy and, and the European mm. stock market, ironically. And, and why have we got this disconnect between um, government stimulus and, and sort of weak industrial production. Where's all this stimulus going? Because we're seeing an enormous amount, aren't we? <laughs> well, well, uh, in China, the, the uh, stimulus is not really not that big. big. Uh, I think in the Shenzhen, they are talking only about 50 yuan per person. And in Hong Kong, you're talking about $5,000 per person. So there, there is a 100 times dif difference between the stimulus. So, so uh, in fact, uh, the chi uh, Chinese government is not doing enough to stimulate the economy. But the problem is uh, over the last three years, they spent all their money on on this uh, uh, net zero policy, and mm. they don't. Have, their local governments don't have too much money left. They are running huge deficits, and and the central governments uh, need to bail out the local governments. So that is why the uh, the the uh, economic stimulus, the economic growth, is still leaves a, something to be desired. Mark, if, uh, if you take all this data that we've seen this week, what does it mean for Chinese assets, particularly for the yuan and also for, for Chinese equities? I think Francis makes a very, very good point that the, the amount of policy support and stimulus that's been announced so far is still inadequate if you are to get back to a pace of growth which um, results in you know, an expansion of both the demand side and, and the supply side. So we need to see more stimulus, particularly around discretionary consumption. So there is talk of some supports for the auto sector where you're seeing uh, a big price war going on because of excess supply and inventory. So what does it mean? I think that we need to wait and see what, what policy developments are, are there. But, but France also makes another good point, which is that actually at a local government level, the fiscal position is very, very stretched. Mm -hmm. uh, and the central government thus far has not indicated its willingness to backstop uh, provincial governments that, that come into trouble. And of course, the, uh, the, the very much preferred measure of, of initial stimulus during previous rounds has been uh, local governments dispersing funds to get infrastructure projects started. And we've seen quite a lot of that already in the loan growth stats that we've seen year to date. But there's a limit to that because of the fiscal difficulties that, that local governments are currently facing. Francis, what do you see this all meaning for, for Chinese stocks? For, well, for the yuan? not very good. You know, ever since 2015, uh, uh, the Shanghai Composite Index has hovered around the 3,000 level. Mm. And, and it, it has zero chance of reaching 5,000 uh, in, in the next year. So, so, th so this means uh, 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 the Chinese economy, they invested money into too much infrastructure because every time they talk about infrastructure building. But, but the fact is, uh, 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 China's pride, the high-speed railway, only several lines are making money. Most high-speed railway lines are not making money. Some of them are making huge losses. They become a drag 
on the economy. The money, the money is is not being invested where where they they need to be, like in consumption, uh, things like that. So so you look at the big figures, it's so it, it looks good. But if you look at the small figures, it's not very good. So uh, the Chinese economy will continue to. Uh, lag behind, and the Chinese uh, stock market will continue to trade around three thousand level. Mark, we're seeing capital outflows from Hong Kong, aren't we? The the aggregate balance now down below fifty million, uh, fifty billion Hong Kong dollars. I think that's the lowest in about fifteen years, and that's obviously weakening uh, the, the the Hong Kong dollar. Um, what is the significance of of this? Why are we seeing these outflows? First of all. I think on a backward-looking basis, it's clearly been quite a powerful net migration outwards wave in Hong Kong, particularly driven by by the COVID pandemic and the restrictions that were in place there. Another factor as well has been uh, similar to the mainland, but for somewhat different reasons, is, is the very stretched uh, fiscal position of the Hong Kong government. We've had big budget deficits the last couple of years. Uh, the hope is that with with the um, the very restrictive COVID measures behind us, and with some signs of life in the, in the Hong Kong economy again. The fiscal position will improve, particularly in terms of tax revenues, with some additional support for local businesses as well. So it, it's partly driven by migration and people taking their savings with them, um, but also perhaps uh, some concerns over the uh, sustainability of current spending. So, but on a look forward basis, there are some tentative signs of, of better times to come, I would say. And we've got this big difference, haven't we, between LIBOR and HIBOR. HIBOR's at about 3.5%, LIBOR about 5.25%. Presumably, the, the, the sort of the balancing of the, of the exchange rate mechanism will sort that out eventually, because local banks, they're, they're going to have to raise their interest rates, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. When you 2% have 2% interest rate difference on the link uh, fixing uh, uh, exchange rate, you, you're, you're going to have pressure on the Hong Kong dollar. So uh, the monetary authority will have to defend the Hong Kong dollar, <laughs> uh, come what may. But uh, uh, as long as the, there's an interest rate disparity, the pressure will, 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 will be maintained. So I think uh, we have to live it with it for for uh, for a certain period mark final word to you do you see this being sorted out by local banks raising their interest rates they're going to have to raise the prime rate aren't they because liquidity is just draining out of the system yeah it's a very different situation to the us where actually banks have been sitting on excess deposits for some time partly for regulatory capital reasons but also because of a pretty muted recovery. So you know, loan deposit ratios in, in the largest banks are somewhere around the 40s to 50s mark. So they don't have to chase deposits to buy higher, offering higher deposit rates. Hong Kong's different. The loans deposit ratios are much higher, partly because the loan books have been much more skewed by the real estate sector historically. So indeed, either uh, deposits have to reprice um, or um, you know, the Hong Kong system has to hope that we're close to the end of the rate hike cycle. And at some point, we'll see some rate cuts. Okay, well, thank you both very much for your thoughts this morning. It's always great to speak to you. Uh, You heard there Mark Franklin, who is Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manulife Investment Management here in Hong Kong, and also Francis Lun, who is the CEO of Geo Securities. I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is director at Staten Advice down in Sydney, Australia. Morning, Toby. 
Yeah, good morning, Peter. Let me ask you first about this key Janet Yellen speech that she made yesterday on US economic relations with China. Um, Did you get the sense from that, that she's trying to put things um, back on track and is she going to succeed? Yeah, it was an interesting one. Um, You know, uh, national security trumping economic interest. Um, Not sure how that plays out. Uh, I think there's a combination there, but I think the three elements of, you know, uh, not being afraid to raise concerns about, uh, uh, you know, uh, predatory tactics in the trade sector or what have you is is one thing in relation to China. I think a little bit of an olive branch around seeking healthy and fair economic competition. Uh, and also I think the easy one in terms of engaging on health and climate uh, change from a global perspective sort of, temper a little bit of the, uh, I guess, the more assertive language around national security. Mm. And and there was this sting in the towel, wasn't there, about um, more restrictions on outbound investment into sensitive uh, sectors like like, uh, technology that maybe have national security implications. So it seems to be, you know, on the one hand, she's saying, I want a, a normal economic relationship with China, but at the same time, be prepared and ready for more restrictions. Yeah, I think, and I think this is the, you know, is the line in the sand, and I think it, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see how Beijing responds, or at least how mainland China responds to this, whether they see it as, as a balanced view or as aggressive posturing by the United States. That'll be interesting to see because that, that will probably be more interesting than what Yellen said is how China reacts. And, and what's interesting is that the approach of the US seems to be, um, she, she talks about um, pushing its friends to, to, to join in either with sanctions or to have this so-called friend-shoring initiative with countries that include places like India, Indonesia, uh, Vietnam. She said she's considering a trip to Vietnam. She really wants to try and diversify, doesn't she, into some of these emerging market nations. Well, I think that's a, that's the obvious uh, trend that's occurred even, you know, since the pandemic, I guess, which sort of highlighted a lot of uh, direct exposure into, into, into China for, for, for a lot of U.S. corporates and the U.S. interests. And diversifying that in, in is the largest, largest growing populist region of the world makes total sense for the, for the United States and probably for Europe and others. Um, so, yeah, friendshoring, I think, is that the expression? Uh, mm. I haven't heard of it. But uh, that makes sense. Um, and it's really just a, a strategic balancing, you know, to ensure that uh, there's a hedge against uh, China. And one of those countries she mentioned, India, uh, the country you, you used to live in until um, recently, mm-hmm. there seems to be quite a lot going on there at the moment. First of all, Apple um, has just opened its first two stores um, in India, one in Mumbai and one in Delhi. Tim Cook was over there to inaugurate those stores um, how important is, is this uh, in terms of, I suppose, first of all, the symbolism, isn't it, of, of Apple opening its first uh, two stores in, in India? It seems to suggest quite a big commitment to the country. I think the optics are really important. Um, and I think uh, Tim Cook in Delhi managed to meet uh, Prime Minister Modi. So that tells you something about uh, the level of importance of this particular relationship. But it's important to note that, that Apple have invested in India for the last six years. Mm. And most recently, um, have really uh, up up their level of investment in the manufacturing capability. So I think um, uh, about a month ago, I think uh, there was a an announcement that uh, Foxconn, which uh, obviously is uh, the Taiwanese company that produces a lot of the component parts for Apple, was investing seven hundred million in a in a manufacturing capacity in Karnataka, which is a state in India. And that would 
lead to uh, the amount of manufacturing coming from India for Apple was about five or six percent now would go towards 25 percent in the coming years. So it is quite significant that Apple uh, investing in India much more aggressive. They already have been, so it's not new. But I think this is symbolic, you know, with the retail stores. Noting, of course, that Apple is a premium product in India versus the Android product, which is much cheaper. 95% of mobile users, I think, are on Android. Mm. Uh, so it's going to be a premium market to try to tap the rising middle class in India. But uh, most recently this week, it's a quite an important symbolic uh, investment by a large US company. And if I look at some of the figures, Apple currently now manufactures five to 7% of its iPhones in India. It doesn't seem a lot, but then when you compare it to just 2021, when they made just 1%, it's, it's quite a big jump, isn't it? So do you think Apple sees India as the new China? Uh, I think it's a quite a broad statement to say new China. Um, I think it's definitely, um, I think for Foxconn um, and Apple, uh, same as what you mentioned in our previous conversation around US interests being diversified um, to not be purely reliant upon Chinese manufacturing. I think this is the same scenario playing out for large corporates is to hedge, Mm. um, diversify their uh, capacity across the region as opposed to in one particular country. Um, And uh, India, I think, will become, you know, maybe a quarter of Apple's production. Uh, mm. in the coming years as much as that that's, that's the government target yep. i think isn't it i think it won't hope that's Apple it that's the government target so they'll get some incentives to to move it in there and and um you know this could plays very much to modi's make in india uh push that uh, and this will be you know the if you want to be successful in india um in terms of a, an outsider coming in it's really about you need to produce onshore Mm. Uh, but I suppose the reality is, even though Apple is going to start making products in countries like um, India, it's also making uh, MacBooks, I think, in, in Vietnam, it's not going to completely disengage from China, is it? It's still going to be manufacturing a significant amount there. And anyway, um, these um, uh, these supply chains are very deeply embedded um, into the into the Chinese economy. Yeah, I don't think it, yeah, as I said, I don't think it's a replacement strategy. Um, it's a diversification strategy. And any good investor will tell, well, anyone who advises you who wants to be a good investor is diversification is key mm. um, to reduce risk. And it, uh, it makes sense. Uh, you would do it uh, if you were an investor, you would want to make sure that you're slightly diversified to any risk against a single asset. Um, this is the same thing in much big geopolitical terms, I guess, but it's the same concept. Now, the other piece of news we had out of India, which is significant, is that India is on its way to becoming the world's most populous nation. It's going to overtake China sometime this summer. It will have about 30 million more people. Um, that's according to data from the United Nations. They say India's population is going to be estimated at 1.4286 billion against 1.4257 billion uh, for China. But the, the key thing is these two nations, India and China, are now going to be more than a third of the total um, global population of, of just over 8 billion. But it does seem significant, doesn't it? Because this is a very f- big um, demographic change that's going on in India. It's a big shift. Um, I did hear the other day, and again, I may be slightly wrong in the numbers here, but in whether it's the next 20 years or so, India will be 1.6 billion, whereas China will drop Yes, one billion. Uh, that's what I heard as well. It's going to keep growing yeah. for the so, next four decades, I think, and peak at about 1.7 so billion. 
That's it, yeah. So India will become the most populous by a fair margin. Um, having you know, lived in, in India, and, and you know, I always marvel when people you know, complain about traffic in Sydney. Um, <laughs> uh, I lived in a city of Mumbai that is the, you know, the equivalent <laughs> of the whole population of Australia. Uh, so this idea of relativity, people who haven't lived in India or been in India don't realise the sheer scale of India in terms of the population. The difficulty thing for India, I think, is, is creating enough jobs um, that uh, will lift um, uh, those who are extremely poor, and there's a large percentage in India, into wealth creative uh, jobs. And that, to me, I think is going to be the great challenge. The population growth is one thing, but being able to provide them with opportunity is going to be the greatest challenge for the for the governments going forward in India, because they're you know they have a slightly a rising middle class, but they also still have a very very large poor. Uh, element of the economy, and and the challenge will be to uh, lift them out of out of uh, poverty, to out of give them jobs that can create wealth, and this will be one of the great challenges over the next decade or two in India. And how does the government propose to do that? Well, this is all about building the Make in India. Uh, you know, not purely, but one of the strategies is obviously to promote manufacturing onshore, industries mm. onshore. Um, I, it's not to replicate the heavy manufacturing that China, but it's, it's been impossible to replicate that, particularly as we're into new economy and digital, what have you. So, you know, you've already seen the success of offshoring and outsourcing type businesses in India. Uh, the benefit being that the uh, well-educated, computer literate, English-speaking tends to be something that gives them an opportunity to, to to really go well in that particular sector. I think obviously in agriculture, you know, creating efficiencies around that, um, uh, energy uh, in renewables. So really trying to establish new industries, uh, light manufacturing, digital economy. Um, the difficulty in that is that it tends to be less labour-intensive uh, some of these industries. So um, this will be the challenge is to, is to obviously invest in the right industries that can create enough jobs um, at the same time as, as managing what is going to be a digital world rather than a heavy manufacturing world. I, I suppose one advantage that India does have with this demographic change is that its population is quite young, isn't it? Whereas if you compare that with China, um, China's population is getting old. There's more and more pensioners and retired people that are having to be supported by less and less working people, whereas it seems to be the opposite in India. You have this huge uh, young a group of people who are all employable and, and skilled. Yeah, so there's pluses and minuses to that, right? So your dependency ratio is what you're talking about, very much in favour of India in terms of demographics. Um, they have a you know a young population, but again, the downside of that is that they're all aspirational and they want all good jobs. Um, and you know, are there enough good jobs for that rising uh, level of, of, of workforce? The flip side is that, of course, China had its one China one child policy for many years and. Um, worked very effectively for them in terms of population control, but now they have an aging population. And worse for them is that the you know those that came through that one child policy are, are having less children themselves. So, uh, as we mentioned earlier, that you know their population rate will decline such that in that in that period going forward, their population could drop towards um, one billion from one point four. And whereas India goes the other way, so there's pluses and minuses to both those stories, right? And uh, India has a huge value proposition because it has a younger population, but they need the jobs and they need the industries to be able to support them. Toby, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, who is director at Staten Advice.
And thank you very much for listening uh, this week. You can get more information on breaking business news and market movements in my daily updates, which are posted on peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Monday's program, I'll be joined by Alex Wong, Director at Alex K.Y. Wong Asset Management, and Dickie Wong, Head of Research at Kingston Securities with a view for mainland China, is Shanghai-based independent economist Andy Sher. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you on Monday. Money Talk. 